0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Affirm's Virtual Investor Forum. My name is Ronald Clark, and I'm the Vice President of Investor Relations here at Affirm. We're thrilled you're joining us today. Max Levchin, our founder and CEO, will start us off with a continuation of his comments around the great unbundling of the credit card, which we started to discuss on our Q4 earnings call just a few weeks ago, as well as provide a deeper dive on our product roadmap. From there, we'll also hear from some of our partners. Then I'll be sitting down with Brooke Major Reed, Libor McCulloch, and Sylvia Martinchevich from our executive team to discuss our capital, technology, and commercial relationships. After that, Michael Linford, our CFO, will take us through a discussion of our business and our financial framework. Finally, we'll cap off the day with a Q&A session with our equity analyst community. But before we get started, just a few housekeeping items. Today's presentations include forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements are subject to numerous risks and uncertainties, including those set forth in our SEC filings, which are available on our Investor Relations website. Actual results may differ materially from any forward-looking statements we make today, and those forward-looking statements speak only as of today and the company does not assume any obligation or intent to update them except as required by law. In addition, today's call may include non-GAAP financial measures that have been adjusted to exclude certain items. These measures should be considered as a supplement to, and not as a substitute for, GAAP financial measures. Reconciliations to the most directly comparable GAAP measures can be found on our Investor Relations website. And with that, I'll turn it over to Max Levchin, Affirm's Founder and Chief
1: Executive Officer. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in today. We're excited that you have joined us for what we hope will be a fun and informative session about Affirm. Affirm is almost 10 years old, and our mission to build honest financial products that improve lives remains unchanged. As we shared briefly in our earnings report for fiscal 21, we continue to pursue it with great gusto and some real successes. Ever since we went public, though, we wanted to host a longer-form event to really dig into our product roadmap, growth opportunities, and the long-term financial trajectory of our business. At our core, we are a product and engineering-driven company, constantly iterating on new ideas, only some of which see the daylight. Today, we'll pull the curtain back a little and show you some of the exciting things we're getting ready to ship and concepts we're only experimenting with. But for those of you who are just beginning to get to know a firm, let me start by discussing what we've built and importantly, how and why. Affirm was founded because of a generational shift. Young people coming of age after the financial crisis of 2008 were no longer willing to tolerate getting into permanent debt by putting it all on the card or getting burned by late fees and deferred interest. These young consumers and many like-minded older ones grew fundamentally suspicious of credit and retreated into the simplicity of their debit cards. Of course, as millennials and Gen Z after them came of age, they too faced the need to purchase things that did not comfortably fit into the regular cash flow, the need to pay for things over time. This need is what gave rise to the entire BNPL industry or the great unbundling of the credit card. The credit card was conceived as the ultimate buying bundle, a great user interface to help you put purchases of all types and sizes together in one basket with the freedom to pay for them later. Unfortunately, if you couldn't pay for them later and in full, endless debt became nearly inevitable and that credit card could quickly become the financial equivalent of a ball and chain. I personally think of credit cards as a financial service equivalent of a Stone Age hammer. Great power, zero elegance, or safety. In the first days of Affirm, we envisioned a much smarter alternative. Unbundle the credit card's features to provide access to transaction-specific credit in a truly transparent and delightful fashion, and do away with the predatory and deceptive elements of credit cards at the same time. Our first step in pulling the bundle apart involved solving for transactions most likely to get you into longer term debt. We made paying for these items with credit more predictable and transparent and helped consumers take back control by integrating Affirm directly at the point of sale. Building this stuff is hard. It requires some serious chops in anti-fraud and underwriting. It also requires scalability and availability to support the extreme ups and downs of the retail calendar we relished these challenges, which, when solved, became our competitive moats. We built proprietary technology from the ground up to assess and price risk and to scale our access to capital markets for efficient funding of these transactions. We didn't stop there. Inspired by demand coming from apparel and beauty categories, we brought our signature convenience and transparency to smaller ticket items. We launched Split Pay. A paying for 0% APR pay later solution only a little over a year ago, and today it's the fastest growing part of our business. The addition of SplitPay's shorter term pay later solution to our longer term pay monthly offering has allowed us to provide consumers and merchants alternatives that span six weeks to 60 months in terms of length and across card sizes ranging from $50 to more than $15,000, all with no late or hidden fees, or deferred interest. Unlike our competitors that only offer such shorter-term pay-later solutions, we are neither constrained by the amount the consumer wants to spend, nor the time they need to pay us back. As shoppers using Affirm felt more comfortable buying nicer items, our consumer satisfaction soared, and our merchant partners saw higher conversion, more sales, and new customers. Today, Affirm is as much a payment network as it is a marketing solution, in particular through interest-free loans where merchants pay a firm for the time value of money and consumers benefit. Motivating a browser to become a buyer without having to offer an explicit discount is a powerful concept for a retailer. Our consistent results, culture of engineering excellence, focus on intelligent risk management, depth of capital markets execution, and relentless search or opportunities to delight consumers helped us become the technology partner of choice for some of the world's most demanding merchants and platforms. And when we partner, we want to bring maximum value possible. Like my favorite programming language, Python, which we used to build many of the company's early systems, Affirm comes with batteries included. Our superpowers are in developing sophisticated, scalable technology risk management, and highly efficient access to capital. And wherever these strengths can become keys to help our partners unlock consumer delight, we believe we have a right to compete and an opportunity to win. And there's a certain ironic symmetry here. Even as we peeled apart the tight, confusing bundle of features inside consumer credit cards, we work diligently to bundle unique merchant services, leveraging our strengths with integrated pricing. We've recently built and acquired some truly great value-added services and brought them to our partners. A shopping tab we added to our transaction management app, Affirm Marketplace. For consumers, the marketplace is a great place to discover a firm's latest partners, their products and services, and hear about the latest promotions they're offering. For merchants, this is a highly qualified user referral engine and a carefully managed marketing service. Today, a third of transactions originate on our site and app representing an efficient new channel for our merchants. In addition to our transaction fees, we earn an affiliate fee for these transactions from our partners. In fiscal 2021, we also acquired Returnly, a unique solution that helps merchants process returns, a common challenge in fashion and retail, and delight consumers with an exceptional value proposition you can purchase a replacement item with an instant merchant credit before having to ship the unwanted one back to the retailer. Although there is little geographic overlap among consumers, most shop in their local geography, many of our merchant partners are multinational businesses. We see international expansion as another bundled value-additive service to our partners. We're highly motivated to ensure we can serve our merchant partners wherever they operate via a single integration. That is why we acquired Paybright, the leading provider of buy now, pay later services in Canada around the time of our IPO. Now, partnering with a firm in English and Quebecois French, speaking part of North America, is that much more of a no brainer. And we, of course, won't stop with just lending in North America. After a decade of being maniacally focused on the US market, expect us to start showing up in a few more geographies soon. Let's talk about a few more bundled products we are playing with or are about to release. Hot off the press, Adaptive Checkout. It's a truly seamless integration of our monthly installments product and the low AOV split pay. Merchants can now offer consumers a choice of four biweekly interest-free installments or monthly payment options, in a single integrated checkout solution, supporting a wide array of purchase sizes. Both short and longer term options have been available separately, and until now the merchants had to enable the right product for the right item. Adaptive Checkout takes that burden completely away. We automatically present an optimized set of offers to each consumer in mere seconds by using machine learned insights to drive both maximum sales conversion and highest possible consumer delight, and it drives results. Merchants with early access to this have seen an incremental 26% increase in conversion just by adding adaptive checkout to existing Affirm integrations. One of the amazing things about running a SKU-aware payment network is that you can do some real magic. Brand-sponsored promotions is a unique technology we've built that enables merchants to promote consumer brands on their platforms alongside the power of 0% APRs by enabling the brands to programmatically sponsor specific items at specific retailers. The consumers get an interest-free, often long-term plan to pay. Merchants drive incremental sales and brands are able to reach new customers, all enabled by a firm's technology. Brand-sponsored promotions are live today at Walmart, powering head-turning deals like interest-free loans on select models of Samsung TVs and Goodyear tires. And we plan to significantly expand these promotions for the holiday season. Our software engineering DNA is why some of the best tech companies in the world choose to partner with a firm. Shopify is one such company. Integrating a firm into Shopify's native payment platform, ShopPay significantly accelerated adoption of our service. Today, ShopPay Installments, which is powered exclusively by Affirm, is enabled for hundreds of thousands of Shopify merchants, helping those merchants drive growth while delighting their consumers. Yet despite its sharp looks, ShopPay Installments isn't actually a one-off custom integration. In fact, this is another service of ours Something we dubbed Powered by a Firm. Powered by a Firm is the full catalog of a firm's core services available via modern APIs. A firm logo is, of course, visible, but our partners enjoy near infinite flexibility in designing and testing user interfaces for their checkout or wallet offering. We are unique in our market in offering this capability, which further increases our already excellent incremental conversion at the point of sale. We plan to continue bringing innovation to the technology of BNPL. Expect to see more exciting services powered by a firm. And a glimpse of one of the more emergent areas in our product roadmap. We're starting to leverage our technology and proprietary data to help our merchant partners in other areas of their business, specifically in working capital. Still in its infancy, Our merchant capital program has advanced millions of dollars in fiscal 2021 to several of our partners, and we intend to scale it meaningfully. Expect us to look for more opportunities to buy and build as we look to leverage our core strengths, tech, risk, capital, in the relentless search for consumer delight in partnership with our merchants. We evaluate new opportunities and enter new markets very deliberately. The central question that must be answered in the affirmative is will this new initiative strengthen the consumer and the merchant side of our network? And as we now go through some of the new concepts from the consumer roadmap, you'll immediately see the value accruing to our merchant partners too. We believe every financial transaction would be better reinvented the Affirm way, simpler and more transparent. Until now, we've never addressed the all-important daily spend. Groceries, restaurant meals, incidental purchases. The things that people are most likely to pay for with their debit card. The decision to fall back on debit makes a lot of sense here. Nobody wants to pay interest on a sandwich or a cup of coffee, yet affordability is still a key concern. Now, instead of being faced with late fees when they're a day late, they get hit with overdraft once for not always being on top of their checking account balance. Combining Debit with Affirm-style credit we knew would be able to take our offering to the next level. This is why we're so excited about our latest innovation, Affirm Debit Plus. We worked very hard to create a product designed to meet the bar of convenience set by the best cards people already have in their wallet today the effortless access it provides to a smarter, more transparent way of paying over time at brick-and-mortar stores and online is something that can only be done with excellent technology. Here's how it works. consumer can use the Affirm Debit Plus card in place of the regular debit card. It connects seamlessly to their existing bank account, and no new checking account is required. With Affirm Debit Plus, you swipe or tap and store like you're used to except it's not like any other card. Post-purchase, you can effortlessly change a transaction to pay over time in just a few taps, exactly like you see here. This painless access to control and flexibility in a single card is extraordinary. And there are no gotchas, just incredible technology. You can also use a firm Debit Plus to pay upfront for everyday items whether you're buying gas for groceries or coffee and a pastry, or use a firm debit plus anywhere you can shop online. Add items to your cart. Then when you're ready to check out, enter your debit plus card number like you're used to. Just as with in-store purchases, a firm will notify you if you can pay over time for your transaction. But it is your choice. If you'd rather pay upfront, feel free. Ignore the prompt, and you can manage all of your payments in the debit plus companion app. A firm Debit Plus really is the only card consumers will ever need. We believe Debit Plus is not only the most significant upgrade to the debit card since its debut over half a century ago, but a truly revolutionary idea that can help millions of people enjoy life with a lot less angst about spending, saving money. We're excited to bring this card to the nearly million-strong wait list that's signed up at affirm.com slash card, and there's still time to add your name to that list. But beyond the elegant user interface of the Debit Plus app, the beauty of our card is that it's powered by software, which means you can expect us to regularly add new features and functionality via app updates. In other words, we expect Debit Plus card that we showed you today to improve frequently, and the possibilities are almost infinite we have a whole host of features planned for the card already. And while we're initially only launching with our split pay offering, we plan to extend our monthly interest bearing and longer term 0% APR offerings to the card. It has been keeping us very busy, Debit Plus is far from the only exciting new product on our consumer roadmap. Another way we're looking to surprise and delight our users is for rewards. We have been quietly piloting a firm cashback for a little while now in our app, and we're pleased with the initial results. In the coming months, we plan to launch an even fuller offering of Affirm Rewards, which will reward users for engagement with our products and using Affirm. As users transact from our app, pay with a debit plus card, or make on-time repayments, they'll earn rewards. These can be used to make purchases or payments, deposited into a savings account, or simply cashed out into their own personal bank account. It's a lot of cool features to pack into a single Affirm mobile app, so we had to change our visual architecture to accommodate an influx of these offerings and more. The Affirm Super app will combine the best of Affirm's commerce, payments, and financial services into a single destination, including our existing virtual card, shopping, and savings experiences. It will be the destination for savvy shoppers providing exclusive offers, curated shoppable content, and smart shopping tools to inspire confidence in users as they shop. The Super App will be an integral tool for users to receive the convenience of Affirm everywhere they go, enabling a simpler, faster omni-channel payment mode for our consumers. And to truly extend the value of Affirm everywhere, we'll have enabled virtual card creation and usage online through the Affirm browser extension, furthering the ubiquity of Affirm on all channels and devices. As you can see, our consumer roadmap is similarly brimming with ideas and fun new features. We plan to launch everything you just saw within weeks and months ahead, and we're already working on more yet to be announced new products. After 10 years, a firm is still very much a startup. We're trying not to take ourselves too seriously, except when it comes to risk management, have fun, build new amazing things for our partners and our consumers, Not all these ideas will resonate with consumers and merchants and some definitely will not. But we will move quickly and bring them to market to learn, iterate and win. Oh, one last thing to show off on the consumer roadmap. It's time for a firm to support cryptocurrencies in a way that feels organic to us. That's right. We will soon leverage our savings accounts to seamlessly enable crypto ownership. Consumers will be able to buy and sell crypto directly from their savings account, driving the value of their dollars even further with what has been a long-term appreciating asset class. If you got this far in our story, you may be getting dizzy with all the cool products we're working on. Allow me to try to offer a simple summary of our product strategy. We're focused on maximizing frequency of consumer engagement It's a lot easier to improve lives if you're a daily part of someone's. Helping consumers to feel smarter about and delighted with their financial decisions as they shop, spend, or save is all about meeting them where they are. We're equally focused on maximizing partner value. Much of our revenue comes from the services we sell to merchants, their suppliers, and their platforms. Our job is to deliver more value than they're paying us for leveraging our unique strengths. These two goals are in parallel, they're mutually referential. Consumer delight and attendant frequency gives us more opportunities to promote our merchant partners to our consumers, which in turn drives more transactions and ultimately more delight. By focusing on these two measures, we are creating strong network effects and strengthening our consumer and partner relationships in the process. As we look to the future, I couldn't be more excited about our product roadmap and what lies ahead. For the past decade, consumers chose Affirm for the transparency, flexibility, and ease of use of our offerings. And with all that we're building, we're confident that we'll add even more consumers to our network and delight them in new ways that will keep them coming back. Likewise, we believe we can do a lot more for our merchants and we are working on additional opportunities to leverage our technology skills underwriting expertise and capital markets experience to bring them solutions that meet their needs and help them grow. Our unmatched product offerings for both consumers and merchants will help a firm take a much larger share of the nearly $800 billion U.S. e-commerce market, the eight trillion of card spend processing online and in store, and the estimated one trillion that merchants spend on customer acquisition. We appreciate your support as shareholders, and we look forward to the many successes we'll share with you in the future. Thanks so much,
0: Max. Now, I'd like to hand it over to a few of our Affirm partners to share a little about their relationship with the firm and the value that Affirm has driven for their businesses. While they couldn't join us live, they've sent over some remarks that I'm going to play for you. First up, Shopify's VP of Merchant Services, Kaz Najatian, will share a brief overview of the Affirm-Shopify partnership.
2: A firm exclusively powers shock pay installments in the US. Uh, we partnered with a firm because it was a technology company at the core. And it addressed the needs of our merchants uh, with the best tools available to help them run and grow their business. But a firm was more than just a technology company. Uh, a firm's commitment to never charging consumers with late or hidden fees was really appealing to us. Because that's part of our commitment to make sure we do right by the merchants and their customers. Look, our mission at Shopify is to make commerce better for everyone. And partnering with a firm enables us to do just that. I also asked Kaz to
0: talk a bit more about
2: Shop Pay installments. We built Shop Pay Installment as a custom product together with the firm. And our goal was to meet the needs of our massive and diverse merchant base. Uh, We built it to be the best buy now, pay later solution on the internet. And I think the early results speak for themselves. One in four merchants who used Pay installments in early access saw a 50% increase in average order value. That's 50% higher average order value than they would have seen with other payment methods. We saw a 28% decrease in carts being abandoned among merchants that switched to shop Pay installments from another provider. And shop Pay installments is insanely fast. It's 30% faster checkout compared to other processors. And that's why we've seen... Hundreds of thousands of merchants adopt shop pay installments. Now, Birdie's CEO and co-founder,
0: Bianca Gates, will tell us a little about what made a firm the right choice for Birdie's.
3: A firm was the only pay-over-time provider who could offer customers customized payment options that suit their budget as opposed to a set bi-weekly payment plan. Plus, a firm's technology is unmatched. And they've consistently demonstrated an unwavering commitment to doing right by our customers. And they've never charged a late or hidden fee.
0: I also asked Bianca to speak about Bertie's experience integrating a firm.
3: We integrated a firm into our e-commerce stack pretty early on when we were a very small team without any developers. They made it super easy for us to launch quickly and test the performance as we introduced new products, new price points. And we were able to grow sales 4x year over year the first year we started working with a firm.
0: And about the results a firm has driven for Birdies.
3: A firm has been an exceptional partner to us and has had a remarkable impact on our company. A firm powered Birdies orders have demonstrated consistently higher AOV than our site wide average. And a firm has helped us grow our business over 7x since launching with them just three short years ago.
0: Last, but certainly not least, Samsung's chief digital officer, Cal Raman, is gonna share a little about why Samsung started working with
4: Affirm. You know, Samsung is a consumer-centric company, and uh, we start with customer experience and work backwards. Uh, I found Affirm to be equally consumer-centric from the variety of products they offer, which is very important because we are in multiple categories. And the customer experience they give, where they don't charge any late fees, the easy way consumers can access the Samsung's uh, various products through Affirm's various platforms, is phenomenal. And that's the reason why we chose Affirm. I've worked with lots of fintech companies. I found their focus on customer experience, innovation, the range of products, is unparalleled in the industry.
0: I also asked Cal to speak to how Affirm has helped Samsung.
4: You know, the end of the day in e-commerce, especially the fact that we are in a highly considered purchase, we are an electronic business, the single biggest droppage you would get is when consumers try to click the final checkout, right? And that's where Affirm's range of products and Affirm's ease of use has played a big role in improving not only our uh, business, our conversion has gone up, our revenue has gone up, the GMV has gone up, but the customer satisfaction has simultaneously gone up. So it is truly a win-win-win partnership. It is a win for our consumers, it's a win for Samsung, and it's a win for firm.
0: Having heard from our merchants, next, I'd like to invite three of our executives up for a fireside chat. We have with us Brooke Major Reed, our Chief Capital Officer, Sylvia Martinchevich, our Chief Commercial Officer, and Libor Mahalik, our President of Technology, Risk, and Operations. Our questions for today come from a firm's analysts and investors who were recently polled. And I'm really excited to have each of you here with us today. Let's start with Sylvia on partnerships. Sylvia, Affirm has recently won several really exciting large merchant and platform partnerships. What are the key reasons why companies such as Amazon, Walmart and Shopify choose Affirm?
5: That's a great question, Ron. And while these seem like recent wins, um, this strategy goes back to 2019. We built a very intentional strategy to win enterprise and platforms, with the goal of becoming a gold standard and a premier technology platform for those segments. In turn, of course, these partnerships help us acquire customers at amazing scale. When we planted these seeds many years ago, uh, we knew that it would take time, and so we focused on landing and expanding. We also knew that these sophisticated partners require deep, and differentiated integrations into their tech stacks that only a firm could do. And so we built a deep moat. So I'll give you an example of the Walmart journey. Uh, We started over two years ago now and started with a small number of high-order value offerings. We conducted many A-B tests to ensure incrementality. And then we expanded. We expanded SKUs, We expanded verticals. um, We added low average order value offerings. Um, Our partnership with Walmart is so deep that we're working with their suppliers as well. Um, Samsung and TrackPhone are two examples uh, where we've built brand-sponsored promotions to drive more sales of Samsung and TrackPhone at Walmart. And so when you look at sophisticated partners like Walmart, with complex tech um, and long-term product roadmaps, um, they need a partner that can work with their product uh, and their commercial teams in lockstep, uh, whether you know working with them on their promotions, like deal days that they do in the summers, or their Black Friday and Cyber Mondays, um, or whether developing joint long-term roadmaps to drive innovation together. Um, He also mentioned Shopify, a partnership that we have built over the last year. Um, We would say we're uh, still in the early innings, um, and we will grow that relationship over time in a similar way. The first step was to get um, merchants enabled on Shopify installments. Uh, We now have, um, I'm happy to say, hundreds of thousands of merchants that are enabled. And the next step is to drive additional merchant adoption and consumer engagement. And then similar to Walmart, we will drive and build new features together with Shopify, whether that's longer terms or returns management. Uh, And the last partner that you mentioned is Amazon. It's been in the headlines recently a little bit. Uh, It's a vast opportunity uh, that we look forward to sharing with you uh, as we grow. Um, Amazon really has a wide breadth of offerings that we, at Affirm, are uniquely positioned to support uh, from long-term financing to daily spend and really everything in between. Um, Even with all of the progress that we have made, um, we have a long runway ahead. I want to make that very clear. Uh, With Walmart, Shopify and Amazon, um, this gives us access to over half of all of U.S. e-commerce. And with that, we have an opportunity to drive adoption and drive penetration in the way that we have to date. Um, And listen, Ron, we'll keep doing what we have done well to date. We're going to put our heads down and we're going to work with these partners uh, on long-term product and marketing roadmaps to be fully aligned with that of our partners.
0: Thanks, Sylvia. I know that investors will really be excited to see what's next on that partnership front. Libor. Having timely and valuable insights is also critical for merchant success, particularly those enterprises that Sylvia just mentioned. How does Affirm leverage its data and analytical capabilities to help our merchant partners to grow their businesses?
6: Oh, wonderful question. So Affirm has collected data on consumer shopping, payments, and purchasing power across a wide range of merchants and products, down to the SKU level. As we expand our merchant and consumer base, we continue to accelerate the breadth and rate at which we absorb this data. This data helps us to better serve consumers by allowing us to expand their purchasing power, surfacing the right opportunities, giving them the confidence to make their next purchase. It also enables us to provide our merchant partners with insights into the purchasing power and habits of their customers. More importantly, this data allows us to craft and analyze the cost and impact of the programs that attract a wider range of new customers and increase the frequency and purchase size of their existing customers. Similarly, we're able to ensure that existing Affirm customers are aware of these merchant programs through our mobile apps in a way that is relevant to the customer's shopping habits and planned future purchases. So, the most value to our partners is in the analysis of this data, which unlocks their ability to work with a broader range of consumers than they are working with today. That's great.
0: I know that uh, these deep insights will certainly help us to forge even deeper partnerships Mm. with our merchants. Brooke, among our peers, Affirm is somewhat unique in our capital markets expertise and our strategic use of our balance sheet. Why are those capabilities so important to Affirm and what long-term advantages do they provide us?
7: Thanks for the question, Ron. Let me start by sharing why we are so incredibly passionate and excited about this work. We firmly believe that our ability to fulfill our mission of delivering honest financial products that improve lives is predicated upon having sustainable access to deep, diverse pools of committed and flexible capital. So you see, there is really no surprise that we have developed our capital program with the same level of intentionality that Sylvia referenced and discipline as we, as our overall product platform, having a balance sheet that is optimized by the flexibility of our capital program really allows us to offer a range of offerings in a differentiated way in a very competitive space. So at the heart of this, Ron, is our capital markets expertise. It has really enabled us to deliver differentiated value across our ecosystem, which includes an enviable group, of regulated, well-capitalized financial institutions, uh, marquee domestic and global asset managers and funds, and most recently, asset-backed securities investors. So, you know, putting this in context, Ron, in the very beginning, when we started this journey, we began with the basic need to fund the loans on our platform. So we leaned into warehouse facilities, committed warehouse lines, and then we systematically migrated to a velocity-driven model, leaning into loan buyers and securitization that could sustainably support the exponential GMV growth we sought. This model helped us achieve a 78 percent CAGR in terms of GMV growth over the past two fiscal years across our core products at scale. And, Ron, the exciting piece of this is that the model is really flexible. It's flexible enough to consistently support new offerings without bloating the balance sheet. So having said all that, it really brings me to where we are today, which is very exciting. A durable capital program that delivers those benefits and so much more across three primary symbiotic funding channels, allowing us the ability to optimize economics, liquidity, all-important liquidity, and balance sheet size, ultimately, What you're looking at is our ability to reduce the overall equity capital required to fund our loans as a percentage of total platform portfolio by a whopping two thirds. You're looking at 12 percent in fiscal 19 to 4 percent in fiscal 21. So as you can see, the capital program mirrors the exceptional trajectory of our overall platform. I could put it to you this way. R-alpha, the warehouse lines, beta, you could say the loan buyers, and then GA, programmatic asset-backed securities issuance. That in itself has created a distinct competitive advantage relative to our peers. So don't get me wrong, Ron, (laughs) this took a lot of time. And so our success is a direct result of our technology and analytical prowess, which Lieber referenced earlier. So in addition to that, We have robust underwriting and risk management capabilities, which we bring bring, bringing this all together. And so, yeah, the work isn't done, and we haven't stopped. We continue to refine and fine tune the capital program with a keen focus not only on just increasing capital efficiency, but also effective balance sheet management. Super, super important. As we set set our sights on new heights for the platform, which we know we will achieve, The results have and continue to demonstrate our success in in, in this regard. So we've proven that. So it's with all of that that can truly affirm, pun intended, (laughs) that we have pressure tested our capital program's ability to deliver differentiated value across not only the largest uh, consumer enterprises, Sylvia just talked about those, but also a diverse array of merchants uh, individuals and capital partners alike at scale, and as we've seen most recently through fluctuating economic cycles, we really believe, Ron, that this is a a real competitive advantage in our space.
0: That's great, Brooke. Our capital markets expertise is really critical to driving our future growth, and I'm looking forward to seeing how you develop that program going forward. Speaking of a firm's competitive advantages, Libor, the strength of a firm's technology is often cited as one of our key competitive advantages. In your view, what are a firm's primary advantages in technology and how sustainable are they?
6: Oh, Ron, as an engineer, I love this question. There are two primary advantages that we believe are sustainable over the long term with continued investment our machine learning systems and our internally developed vertically integrated financial product stack. On the machine learning front, we've invested heavily in both algorithms and the data on which those algorithms operate, including how that first-party and third-party data is managed from creation all the way through model training, validation, testing, and live decisioning. However, the real long-term advantage is the model development process, which brings together the algorithms, the data, and the previous iterations of the model to advance the effectiveness of the next model. This is how we approach all the models in our machine learning system, that create an advantage for us in fraud, underwriting, personalization, servicing, capital management, et cetera. That aggregate machine learning system, the growing collection of models fed from that growing body of data, creates a wonderful flywheel of better decisions, more efficient decisions that improve the quality of the user experience while delivering more value to consumers and merchants. Second is our vertically integrated financial stack that is a set of loosely coupled internally developed systems that flow from user experience to our decisioning systems to the set of ledgers that power the financial products to our serving, serving to our servicing and capital program and everything in between while we continue to develop these capabilities independently we can also quickly enable functionality that spans the entire service new products new countries new partners new requirements etc Being loosely coupled means we can independently advance the state of the art in each domain, but having all the core functionality in-house means that we can tackle complex opportunities very quickly. Even more importantly is the data that comes from these core capabilities. We remain in control of the data that is produced by each of these systems, which is the same data that's being fed into the machine learning system that makes it a critical element in the technology flywheel that's becoming more efficient is able to support more functionality and deliver more value as it scales up. So, I do see both of these especially together as an advantage that is not only long-term sustainable, but also an advantage that builds on itself over time.
0: Thanks, Libor. It's great to see how we're really driving our advantage in technology. I want to turn back to Sylvia for a moment. Sylvia, the large-scale partnerships that we have um, have several advantages to them. One of those is bringing millions of consumers to a firm's offerings for the very first time. How are you re-engaging with those consumers and, uh, on the platform um, today?
5: For many of our new co- uh, consumers, their journey really begins at the merchant's point of sale. So imagine a consumer that's buying jeans at Walmart or a lamp at Williams-Sonoma or a vacation um, at VRBO. And so after a consumer discovers a firm at the merchant point of sales, uh, we engage that consumer through our app. Many discover our app during the repayment process, um, and once that consumer is in our mobile ecosystem, uh, there are great opportunities uh, for engagement and re-engagement with a variety of different tools. We've built dynamic lifecycle marketing, zero percent promotions, our savings product, and many other marketing and promo tools. We really look to our app as a huge opportunity for re-engagement, and we'll be working diligently to continue to drive more adoption. To that end, and um, uh, as as Libor was speaking earlier, um, we also uh, use our data very diligently. Um, and, in fact, um, are currently developing advanced machine learning technology uh, to further augment consumer insights um, that we have gained over the last 18 months working with so many enterprises. And so what we're doing there is we're um, hyper-personalizing and matching consumers with merchants in uh, timely and relevant ways. For example, uh, we've created sophisticated trigger-based automated marketing campaigns uh, that are based on personal consumer journeys. Uh, for example, if you're buying that TV from Samsung and you abandon, abandon the cart, um, we, can bu- we can build that triggered um, uh, campaign to drive you back um, and, and purchase that uh, TV. Uh, Another very, very important lever for us for consumer engagement is brand building through merchant co-marketing. We work with some of the most recognized brands on the planet. And in fact, over the last fiscal year, our brand recognition has increased by 70 percent for Gen Pop uh, and even more for Gen Z and millennials. Um, You know, you can imagine, Ron, uh, marketing with Amazing names like Target and Peloton um, has a dual halo effect. Uh, Last but certainly not least, um, we know that happy customers come back. And so we really try hard to delight our consumers with the amazing technology that Libor spoke of um, and also through really, really elegant and wonderful customer support experience. Um, We always uphold our core values, one of which is no fine print, Um, And we treat our customers in the way that we would want to be treated. And they reward us with an NPS score of 78, which is um, on par with some of the best brands on the planet.
0: That's great. I'm sure investors will appreciate the flywheel effect that these large wins create on the consumer acquisition front. Brooke, I want to turn back to you for a moment. The capital markets team has executed several very successful asset-backed transactions including a firm's first securitization to include split pay and its first non-consolidated securitization. And the cost of the capital and the advance rates for these transactions have been very attractive. How have you been able to achieve these results?
7: So we're quite proud and humbled by the reception we've gotten in the market. So, Ron, I'll tell you that it comes back to our core competencies, which are very powerful to us. The ability to underwrite and manage risk at scale, Um, our sophisticated and very credible capital markets expertise that's coupled with our commitment to being a programmatic asset-backed securities issuer. So let me break it down in terms of where it all starts, right? So it really fundamentally starts with our ability to underwrite high-quality assets, followed by our ability to do so consistently at scale, which we have. And then our job is to really align uh, those assets for the right uh, capital markets execution via securitization, which is a deep and efficient funding source for us. So let me give you an example. Bifurcating our securitization program into a long duration static shelf and a short duration um, revolving shelf allows us to optimize pricing by taking advantage of the unique qualities of our loan book and uh, the ability to meet a variety of investor needs. Finally, we tie this all up in our ability to seamlessly replicate the uh, transaction execution process, then again, supported by the asset performance. So each deal attracts a more diverse group of investors, and that uh, creates a virtuous cycle with those investors. So it allows us to do two key things. One, gain support for new structures, which we're always looking to do. And two, be rewarded over time with better overall economics and terms. Our most recent transactions are the ultimate manifestation of the power of the cycle at work. So in May, we issued 2021 Z1. That was our first non-consolidated deal, which got off balance sheet treatment. That was followed in August by 2021 b That marked our sixth overall ABS transaction. Very, very proud of that. And so that deal was well-received in the market, and it was our most efficiently executed transaction to date, requiring minimal Affirm Equity capital. So that is really, really something we're quite, quite proud of. So needless to say, Ron, the results are impressive by any measure but they're only effectuated by the flexibility and the velocity we have created within our capital markets program, which again, we, we know is a key competitive advantage for us.
0: Thanks, Brooke. It's great to see us extending our advantage in capital markets with such great execution. Now, looking into the future, LIBOR, why is a firm so invested in building out its technology capacity? And how do you think about the scalability
6: of a firm's product and engineering efforts over time? Such an important question, Ron. While a firm has grown quickly to a meaningful scale, we have only scratched the surface in delivering on our mission of honest financial products that improve people's lives. We have significantly more ideas and opportunities than we have the people to build them in a timely manner. At the same time, as we look at those opportunities, We also need to be mindful of judicious investment in our core capabilities. Being a technology company means continuing to reinvest in improving our existing capabilities by the teams that have developed development and operational knowledge of those systems. That know-how is critical input into the next generation of the service. What we're ensuring with this feedback loop is that we don't leave behind a hollow core which would leave us ossified and unable to adjust to the market or execute on ideas that are tied to our core functionality. Because of the speed with which the market is evolving, we're not going to rely on third parties for core technology. We've all seen what that kind of dependency does to uh, response times and execution times. The expansion into new products, geographies, verticals, as well as our growing scale and continued improvements in our existing products are all constrained by available resources, which is prompting our investment in engineering talent. To efficiently accelerate that expansion, we're adding a significant engineering office in Poland, along with the office we added in Madrid through our Returnly acquisition, allowing us to tap into the engineering talent available across the entire EU. We're really excited about these investments that we're making and look forward to the next year.
0: Thanks, Libor. It'll be exciting to see how these investments in technology drive our future growth in years to come. So next question goes to Brooke. Brooke, in thinking about how you're managing a firm's capital, what factors are you most focused on optimizing?
7: That's a critical uh, question, Ron. One of the key factors we think about from a capital perspective is consistency of performance, Ron. In a landscape as competitive and dynamic as the BNPL market, it's imperative that we manage consistent performance across the portfolio while supporting the business needs to add new products, approve new users, and enter new verticals. So consequently, we have to be very mindful about how we fund these initiatives while maintaining and building upon the high-quality execution we enjoy today across our funding channels. This is really important for us, and and we're very focused on it.
0: Thanks, Brett that focus will certainly help us to drive our advantage forward. Now, this last question goes to Sylvia. Uh, Sylvia, what do customers and merchants want next from a firm? In what directions can we expand upon our consumer and merchant relationships to drive engagement, satisfaction, and ultimately create shareholder value?
5: Great question. Predicting the future. Uh, So, you know, as we mentioned earlier, we developed deep relationships with our merchants. And we highlighted some of the largest merchants, but we work with merchants of all sizes, from Walmart to Watchfinder. And when we talk to them, something that these merchants have in common, all of them, regardless of the size, is all of them are constantly looking for new ways to growing their business and attracting new customers. And so what a firm offers is a growth platform through our technology that Libor talked about, risk and capital solutions uh, that Brooke talked about. In short, wherever technology, risk and capital prevent merchants from growing and delighting their customers, we will be there for them. Uh, So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Peloton, Uh, we've worked with Peloton for a long, long time and have really grown with them. Um, of course, we provided installment solutions uh, for their bikes in the United States to make them more affordable. And when they started launching in Canada, they asked us to come to Canada with them. Another example is Samsung. Uh, we started working with Samsung on installments, and recently, um, as they launched the flip-and-fold new phones, they asked us to build a custom installment solution Um, try now, pay later. And we built that for them, and that's now included in a lot of their marketing um, for those new flip and fold phones. And so as we look into the future, uh, we see many opportunities to continue to deepen our merchant relationships in such similar ways um, through a suite of tech offerings. And so I'm not going to share the product roadmap, uh, but um, what you can bet on is that uh, we are going to invest um, in merchant analytics and using data um, to help our merchants a uh, deeper understanding of consumer buying behaviors, and also um, building new merchant services, uh, whether that means uh, continuing to serve, financing for a variety of cart sizes, as well as some innovative solutions like brand-sponsored promotions that I talked about earlier with Walmart. Um, and really, as with any good product organization, we listen to our customers and we innovate based on their needs. And so while we have our internal product roadmap, uh, much of the innovation will be from requirements from our merchant and platform partners. I look forward to continuing to share our plans with you over time and, of course, continuing to deliver on those plans.
0: That's great. I'd like to thank you, Brooke, Sylvia and Libor, for your thoughtful insights today. I know our investors really enjoy hearing from you. And now, I'll turn it over to our Chief Financial Officer, Michael Linford, for a deep dive into a firm's financials.
8: Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to share more about how we plan to build on our significant momentum and how we envision our financial future. As Max discussed, we have a robust roadmap for a firm that we believe will deliver sustainable growth with strong long-term unit economics for years to come. We have built and continue to build trust-based relationships on both sides of our network. Aligning our interests directly with consumers and merchants isn't just the right thing to do. It's good business that delivers results. During our most recent fiscal year, we powered more than 16 million transactions, totaling more than $8 billion in GMV, a 78% compound annual growth rate from fiscal year 19. In fiscal 21, We grew total revenue to $870 million, an 81% compound annual growth rate from fiscal 19. We see attractive opportunities to build on this strong performance. Affirm is a leader in a massive and fast-growing market and benefits from long-term secular trends. These include the ongoing growth in e-commerce and changing consumer preferences for payments. Finally, we have compelling unit economics, driven by our diverse product portfolio, excellent risk management, capital markets expertise, and proprietary technology. These moats have helped us grow revenue-less transaction costs at a 182% compound annual growth rate since fiscal 19. We've made tremendous progress over the past year, but we believe that we're really just getting started. Affirm is the partner of choice for merchants and platforms in North America, thanks to our unrivaled technology, which allows us to facilitate a wide range of transaction types and provide a high degree of customization and flexibility. Put simply, we turn browsers into buyers for our merchant partners. We drive demand generation, customer acquisition, and conversion at the most critical part of the purchase decision. We do that by providing affordability for both low and high ticket items with 0% APR and interest bearing offerings and have flexibility in our terms ranging from six weeks to five years. In our most recently completed fiscal year, our 0% APR offerings accounted for 43% of our GMV. This includes split pay, our short duration interest-free offering. And for the first time, we are breaking out split pay from that 43% as we expect its adoption to accelerate through our partnership with Shopify to power Shop Pay installments. Interest bearing offerings accounted for 57%. This includes most transactions completed through our app via a single use virtual card which enables consumers to use a firm wherever they shop, even if the merchant is not integrated with the firm. We also have an expanding set of unique services for merchants, including Returnly, which we acquired in the fourth quarter of fiscal 21. We are excited about this opportunity to deepen our relationship with both new and existing merchants with these offerings. Before I dive into the economics of each product, I'll provide an overview of our capital strategy, which Brooke discussed. Capital is critical to our ability to serve merchants and consumers. And we believe it is a point of strength for a firm. We fund our business with four different funding sources. First, we have access to committed warehouse lines that allow us to borrow at floating interest rates and advance 80 to about 90% of consumer balances. While this has been an essential tool for operating our program, we have increasingly funded our recent growth through other sources. Second, we have Ford flow agreements that facilitate the sale of whole loans to counterparties. These allow us to earn upfront revenue, generating a one to 5% gain on sale, while eliminating the need for equity capital. We also collect servicing income on the loans that we service on behalf of those counterparties. Finally, we sponsor two types of securization programs. Our evolving asset-backed security program provides fixed rate funding at both a lower cost of capital and a higher leverage ratio than our warehouse lines. In fact, our most recent transaction encumbered only 1% of our own capital, while allowing us to fund $2.5 billion of assets over the deal's lifespan. Second, our static ABS program is optimized to fund our longer term 0% offering. We achieved off balance sheet treatment with our latest issuance, which allowed us to recognize upfront revenue similar to our forward flow program. Now let's dive into each product, starting with SplitPay. While SplitPay resembles the buy now, pay later offerings that have become so popular today, a firm offers a superior checkout experience and we never charge any late or hidden fees. As a result, SplitPay has a very simple revenue model. We earn income from the fees merchant partners pay us, as well as the interchange fees when we use our virtual card product. While we offer SplitPay in partnership with a number of merchants, we expect the lion's share of the growth in the coming year to come from our long-term partnership with Shopify to power ShopPay installments. Given SplitPay's extremely fast turnover, it has a weighted average life of just three weeks, this asset turns over 15 to 17 times per year. Thus, we can efficiently process a large amount of GMV with our warehouse funding. We also have recently begun funding a portion of our evolving securitization program. To illustrate the capital efficiency of this product, consider that $3 billion of annual split pay volume would result in just approximately $200 million of balance sheet impact. This in turn would be supported by less than $20 million in equity capital or less than 1% of total volume. And thinking about the economics, merchant fee for split pay transactions can range up to 8% of GMV. Cart sizes can vary from $50 on the lower end up to $3,000 on the higher end. Let's go back to how the revenue is recognized in our P&L. While the consumer never pays interest or fees for this product, we do recognize part of this income as interest income through the amortization of loan discount, depending on the nature of the relationship with the merchant. We estimate that a large majority of the revenue from facilitating split pay loans will be recognized as interest income in any given quarter. A firm's ability to offer merchants and consumers much more than a simple six-week payment plan is a key reason why we win. To put it in practical terms, if you're only providing an option to pay for a multi-thousand dollar family vacation and a few bi-weekly payments, you're not solving the affordability problem for consumers. That's why we deliver longer duration financing with our 0% APR offerings. We've seen that this solution is highly compelling for consumers and merchants alike. Our proprietary technology enables us to assess and price these offerings within seconds and provide consumers with a bespoke set of offers designed to suit their needs. Today, terms can range from three to 60 months and span from $50 to over $17,000. Like SplitPay, our revenue source for this product is through the merchant discount rate that we earn from facilitating the transaction. Our capital market's expertise is critical to providing these offerings, as it allows us to efficiently fund the loans without requiring significant amounts of equity capital. Like SplitPay, these transactions never charge any interest or fees to consumers. However, we do recognize some interest income on them. In fiscal year 21, we recognized over $100 million of interest income from our 0% financing products, with 0% installment loans driving the large majority of those balance. When we sell our 0% loans, we maintain the servicing relationship with our consumers and earn a fee from the owners of the loan, which we recognize as revenue in the servicing income line. We offer an interest-bearing product as a way to responsibly and safely expand purchasing power for larger, more considered purchases. Expanding access to credit is a fundamental part of our mission. And these transactions allow us to serve more consumers, merchants, and use cases than our competitors, from tires at Walmart to plane tickets. We typically offer interest-bearing financing by integrating directly with our merchants, but we also offer interest-bearing loans through our non-integrated direct-to-consumer virtual card product. This allows consumers to take out longer-term Affirm loans at any merchant online or in-store. As with our 0% APR loans, we provide customers with offers tailored to their needs with interest rates ranging from 10 to 30% and durations from three to 60 months. As mentioned earlier, Purchases can range from $50 to more than $17,000. Although we primarily derive revenue from consumer interest on these offerings, we also earn merchant fees and virtual card interchange fees on the interest-bearing transactions we facilitate. Given our differentiated credit underwriting approach, our interest-bearing loans are attractive, high-yield, high-velocity assets with strong investor demand in the capital markets. We currently finance these loans through both on and off balance sheet funding sources, warehouses and securitizations on balance sheet, and forward flow loan sales off balance sheet. For interest bearing transactions, our revenue is generally determined by whether we hold or sell a loan on our balance sheet. As with all of our pay over time products, we earn merchant network revenue and virtual card network revenue upfront and pay for the processing and servicing costs over the loan's life regardless of funding channel. When we hold a loan, we make interest income over the loan's life. However, given that we hold the loan, we must take an upfront provision expense for expected losses and incurred debt funding costs. On the expense side of, of the loans that we sell, given that we do not hold it, we do not incur provision expense or funding costs, but we do incur processing and servicing costs. One point to reiterate is that we never sell the servicing rights to outstanding consumer balances. This allows us to control the full consumer experience And we also earn servicing income for managing the loans on the investor's behalf. That brings me back to Returnly, which is a leader in the online return experiences, solving a critical pain point in e-commerce enabled by underwriting and risk management. The addition of Returnly's platform provides merchants with a complete solution for acquisition, retention, and loyalty. Returnly's product maps to the key problems and challenges caused by returns. Wasted time, lost sales, and profitability optimization and, of course, the big challenge of rising customer expectations. To help merchants, we offer self-service returns with automated emails on the return progress, fully branded touchpoints, and order and return tracking. Returnly also helps merchants retain revenue via in-app exchanges, upsell capture on exchanges, deliver product recommendations after returns, while driving customer satisfaction and loyalty. On top of that, When merchants use our instant store credit product, we allow consumers to select a new item before they return the original one. This goes a long way to building trust and saves a transaction that was headed towards a lost sale. Returnly primarily makes money via merchants paying Returnly a SaaS fee, as well as a percentage of orders made with Returnly credit. Returnly is free for shoppers. While modest in size, Returnly earns a SaaS fee that is high margin, and the MDRs earned on the credit can range up to 10 percent and of course like max we are all very excited about the debut of the Affirm debit plus card debit plus will leverage existing network rails at launch and a will earn an interchange fee on debit transactions which we estimate to be between one and one and a half percent ultimately debit plus economics will be based on the consumer uptake of our post-purchase offers while we are initially launching with our split pay offering as max alluded our roadmap contemplates adding monthly interest bearing and longer term 0% APR offerings to the card. As we introduce interest bearing loans, we would earn consumer interest as well. On the expense side, we expect fraud and dispute charges, marginal costs for the two days of funding, and some incremental servicing costs. For those transactions using our split pay feature, we expect to incur the typical costs associated with that offering, albeit with lower credit losses over time we plan on relying on ACH to settle the transactions yielding lower payment processing costs. As we develop the card's features and associated revenue streams, we believe Debit Plus will deliver attractive returns, though in the near term, like any new product, the economics will improve over time. While we have not factored potential volume or revenue from Debit Plus in our guidance for fiscal 22, we believe it will contribute meaningfully in fiscal 23. Debit Plus will expand firms' reach into everyday spend transactions and grow our share of wallet with our consumers. However, we do expect the growth in Debit Plus to reduce a portion of the volume that is currently running through our direct-to-consumer single-use virtual card offering. While there are many important elements to a firm, I think one of the most important and differentiated is our ability to assess and manage risk. To highlight this, we want to show investors where delinquencies have trended and where we expect them to be going forward. We combine a unique blend of human and machine learning expertise to be at the forefront of fraud detection. We can connect to our merchants' inventory and order management systems allowing us to cancel a transaction, stop a product from shipping, or even recall a shipment when it is determined to be fraudulent. This approach has proven robust and allows us to consistently maintain a very low fraud rate. Unlike legacy payment and credit systems, we assess and underwrite risk at a transaction level. Our integration with merchant partners allows us to consider the product that the consumer is purchasing while we assess a credit application. We have also leveraged our transaction level risk models and data sets to develop proprietary consumer level credit models for applications like Debit Plus where item and transaction level data may not always be available at the moment of credit decisioning. Overall, the precision of our risk model allows us to facilitate a greater volume of transactions from a wider and more diverse segment of consumers. At the same time, we're able to minimize risk and maintain attractive economics, providing a fertile ground for our network to grow. To that end, it is important to look at delinquencies in context. Going into the pandemic, we were comfortable with the level of delinquencies in our business, hovering around 2%. As we responded to the pandemic and tightened credit, our delinquencies dropped to a historically low level of less than 1%. Efforts to loosen the credit box show in the beginning of the growth in DQ in the last month of fiscal 21. We expect delinquencies to remain consistent with what is required for strong unit economics in line with our guidance. We do expect a return to pre-pandemic levels in the coming months. With all the exciting initiatives we are pursuing, we expect to continue driving strong growth and unit economics well beyond our current fiscal year we have an exciting opportunity set in front of us, and we expect to continue to compound GMV and revenue at outsized rates for the next several years. As our revenue continues to scale at rapid rates, we expect to demonstrate operating leverage and drive annual profitability improvements beginning in fiscal 23. Ultimately, the degree of operating leverage we demonstrate, and in turn, the rate at which we progress to profitability, will be managed in conjunction with our expectations for GMV and revenue growth in that period. Of course, to deliver that product roadmap and capitalize on the growth opportunities in front of us, we plan to invest in the future of our business. As we outlined a few weeks ago when we shared our financial outlook for fiscal 22, we are investing in technology and marketing to drive growth in the years ahead. However, as our business scales in the years ahead, we expect to drive operating leverage from our fixed expenses, including technology and data analytics, sales and marketing, and G&A. During our growth phase, we expect to deliver GMV growth of 30 to 40% on a compounded annual basis. As you can see from our guidance for fiscal 22, we believe we are still growing faster than the rates implied for that phase. We expect total revenue to grow at a 20 to 30% rate as we expand into lower AOV categories, which carry lower revenue take rates than our 0% APR offerings. Accordingly, we expect revenue as a percentage of GMV to stay within a range centered around 8%. On the expense side, we expect transaction costs to remain steady as a percent of revenue in the same 5% range that we delivered in fiscal year 21 and now expect in fiscal year 22. And as I mentioned, even as we plan to invest to drive continued consumer awareness and adoption and bring our product roadmap to life, we expect to drive leverage in our operating expenses. As a result, we expect adjusted operating income as a percentage of total revenue in the range of approximately break-even to 10%. Looking longer term, we expect take rate of total revenue as a percentage of GMV to settle in the 6 to 8 percent range, with transaction costs of 3 to 5 percent of total revenue. Again, we expect to slow our rate of investment, bringing our adjusted operating expenses as a percentage of total revenue to 18 to 20 percent, yielding healthy long-term adjusted operating margins in the 20 to 30 percent range. We believe a firm will not only continue to grow, but deliver attractive margins at scale. In summary, we have a tremendous opportunity ahead. We are attracting more and more consumers to experience the flexibility, convenience, and delight of our offerings while giving them even more reasons to choose a firm. We are forging deep relationships with the top merchants and platforms as we continue to address more of their needs and help them thrive. By expanding our two-sided network, we believe we will drive growth for the years to come while delivering attractive unit economics as we scale. To sum it up, we've never been more excited about the future of a firm. Four, three, two, one. Thanks,
0: Michael. We'll now begin our analyst Q and A session with CEO and founder Max Levchin and CFO Michael Linford. Our first question comes from Ramsey Ellisall from Barclays.
9: Hi, thanks for taking my question. Uh, Max, I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, you've unveiled a really large spectrum of new products today, some of which just seem to open up, you know, pretty significant new kind of growth runways. I want to ask about your longer-term vision for a firm. Let's say over the next three to five years, how do you see the company evolving?
1: So, thank you for, for teeing me off. It's a great question. Um, so the best way Think about a firm, or at least the way I think about a firm, for what it's worth, is as a software-defined, data-preserving, vertically integrated network. It's kind of a mouthful, but each one of these components is really important. If you compare and contrast us to existing payment networks out there, one of the greatest missed opportunities, if you will, is the fact that they do not preserve majority of the transactional data as transactions move through the system. So the entirety of old networks and certainly payment networks is really all about message passing and it's a tragedy and a giant opportunity that data doesn't stick to the transactions as they, as they move through the system. In this extends far beyond the point of sale, all the way out to financing for things like manufacturing and logistics, all the way out to rewards. the Data just keeps on getting chopped off and then inferred later on or just completely discarded. So the idea for a firm has always been this notion of connecting all the financial dots by preserving the data from the very beginning when the consumer has intent that's forming in their head, all the way out to the culmination of the transaction as the money changes hands, and all the way out to fulfillment and should there be a dispute or repayment cycle, etc. And so the way I think about a firm is that's what I just described as an operating system for applications. I think that there's near you know, I'm sure it's countable, but it's a very, very large set of possible applications that can be built on this foundation as applications. In fact, if you saw through the super app idea that, that, that we just covered, you can almost think of that as the consumer side manifestation of applications we're going to start delivering on top of this operating system. There's just so much to build on top of it. And I realize that uh, there's no name for it yet. We, we think we're, we're paving fundamentally new around here and, uh, and hence the long-winded answer.
9: That's fascinating. Um, I wanted to drill down into one of the products that you mentioned today—the working capital, the merchant working capital product—which um, also seems to open up a, a pretty significant new kind of growth vector. Can you provide any more details on that product in terms of, you know, how it works, or maybe you know, the distribution model you're going to pursue there? Uh,
1: that is a great question. Um, the fundamental insight that powers us to sort of to go back immediately to your part question. So we know a lot about a merchant's business because we see a very frequently, very meaningful fraction of their consumer transactions. One of the ways you can think about merchant's capital profile is through the lens of pre-qualifications that consumers have asked for. When we approve a customer to go shopping at brand X and merchant X, we are basically sizing up both their capital needs and their future cash flow because we know ultimately they will have to go and purchase the supply and or manufacture the supply of what the consumer is about to purchase they're committing to purchase and so we have this really unique data-driven lens over what that merchant might need and not only can we underwrite that merchant based on how strong their cash flow has been and what we expect them to do but also we can understand what their future demand and therefore future manufacturing needs will look like and so that that's sort of the foundational idea why we think we have a right to win here we have something extra that others don't perhaps know as well as we do. Um, it's super early. Again, I'm, I, so somewhere in my talking points, there's just you know bolded statements saying, please don't drop these things into your models just yet. This, this is a preview of the product roadmap as opposed to financial roadmap. But we're super excited about this. I, I think we've talked to merchants plenty, and they told us over and over again, this is a fantastic idea. We love the accelerant that you're offering us. That said, it's a fairly small amount of money, relatively speaking. Um, can throw it over to Michael if he wants to comment on, uh, on the specifics of the financial component of this. No, it's just a little too early.
10: I, I think we will, sure we'll enough, stop right. there. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking my questions.
0: Thanks, Ramsey. Our next question comes from James Fossett of Morgan Stanley.
11: Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for taking I wanted to ask uh, you, Michael, on your slides on slide 36, you talked about delinquencies and how we should expect those to evolve. And in 37, you kind of gave a, 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 a how we should think of business developing. Maybe on, on slide 36, when you talk about getting back to pre-pandemic levels, you mean hovering around that 2% 30-day GQ? And how should we interpret that or as what that'll translate into losses? And then, hopefully, you can give us a little more color about, like, the time frames that you're thinking for uh, the different phases and, and what could impact that, either bringing it forward or push
8: it back. Thanks. Thanks for the questions. Let me start with the second one first, because I think it's kind of illustrative of where we're at. Um, so, our framework for how we'll think about fixed-cost investments and the shape of the income statement is really a framework, not a forecast. and so. We've given guidance for fiscal 22 that clearly puts us ahead of that growth phase that we highlight on that slide. What that means is for the foreseeable future, we think we're gonna be growing faster than even that growth phase and certainly well ahead of of the the right-hand column in that chart. And we think that's probably also going to be true for fiscal 23, although it's quite early. The way to think about that framework is our willingness to invest is a function of our growth expectations and when our growth expectations are exceeding that levels we're going to keep investing and and you see that in fiscal 22 uh and with all the great exciting things we're working on we're, we're we're pretty excited about about what our future is and we're probably even before the growth phase for the foreseeable future now with respect to credit losses it's it's actually a kind of a similar theme so when we entered the pandemic we took a much tighter credit posture and you saw on the chart that quick drop off in delinquencies. Um, And that's too tight. We've been talking about this now for two or three quarters around the the credit benefit that we've received uh, as being as being too tight, mostly because we want to serve more consumers in these transactions. And so we are loosening and we're back to pre-pandemic levels of of risk decisioning. Um, And we would expect delinquencies to rise to that 2% range. With respect to actual losses, you should think about the historical loss rates as being pretty similar, although we do get better over time. And so the question is always, does it show up in losses or does it show up in slightly better unit economics? And as you know, we're we're running a little bit ahead in our unit economics. And so we're in a position to keep investing that in deeper approvals, all while being in, in complete control.
4: Thanks.
0: Thanks, James. Our next question comes from Tim Chiodo at Credit Suisse.
10: Great. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you taking the question. So the first part here is around the pay installments offering to the extent that maybe you can just put some context around the possibility for you to move XUS with Shopify on that, and then also as pay installments moves off platform, so Facebook, Google, and potentially other non-Shopify platforms.
1: Uh, <laughs> great questions. Thank you. Um, as always, uh, we try to take the uh, posture of not speculating on uh, things that seem exciting, sound exciting, might be, and are not uh, are yet in in the in conversation. Um, the one thing that should have come very very clear through uh, through my remarks a little earlier, we see international opportunity as essential and important to us. We, we, we are not limiting ourselves to North America. Obviously, we're now past the US border, but there's a lot more to the world than just US and Canada. So we absolutely intend to go outside of our current geographic, geographic footprint. And the way we intend to do it is exactly through partnerships with our existing large merchant and platform, you know, exi- existing uh, customers, because we have these deep trust-based relationships they value us for exactly the things that we want to be valued, which is technology, ability to manage risk, access to capital in a very efficient way. And so the actual results, as always, will announce when, when they do happen as opposed to speculating on them. But uh, the line of reasoning is, is uh, very, very sensible.
10: Okay, we will take that. Thank you. A quick follow up is for you, Mike. On slide 37, During the growth phase there, I know that your your current year guide does not include Amazon, but is it fair for us to assume that Amazon might be included in the growth phase and maybe the longer term as well?
8: Yeah, again, this is less of a forecast and more of a framework. Um, Clearly, uh, any benefit that we have from any partnership that's currently being tested or worked on would show up in those periods. Um, but again, the way I think about it is if any new partnership were to put us at a higher growth rate, then they would put us before the growth phase. Um, and, and again, if we ever slowed down to where we were slower than we are today or slower than the growth phase, is when you start to deliver um, those adjusted operating income numbers or those, those, that different shape of the whole income statement with respect to revenue contribution and unit economics.
10: Okay, so said differently. Amazon and/or any other large partner would have the potential to essentially delay the time period until we reach the growth phase.
8: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the again, we think about the growth as an input to decisions we make around investment profile in the business. That input would include any partnership, any new product that Max talked about, international. All those things would be inputs to where we're actually at on our maturity. And as we scale the business. We're committing to being responsible about where we invest our fixed costs, but for now, we think the opportunity is just too great to limit ourselves.
10: Excellent. Thank you so much, both of you.
0: Thanks, Tim. Our next question comes from Andrew Jeffrey from Truist.
9: Hi. Uh, appreciate you taking the question this afternoon, uh, Max. I have one for you, and then a follow-up for Michael. Uh, can you? There's been a number of competitive announcements to say the least in dnpl recently uh mastercard today Uh, would there ever be a circumstance in which a firm would think about white labeling uh, its solutions for banks or do you see yourself much more as a direct merchant partner
1: that's a fantastically insightful way of uh of, of of reasoning about the space um and lots of good stuff to dig into there. So we have never white-labeled. Generally speaking, we have no intention of doing so for two very pragmatic reasons. Number one, when someone sends you a bill and the bill says, hey, we're from Affirm, you owe us money, if you haven't seen the Affirm logo and haven't been fully indoctrinated that it is, in fact, a firm you're transacting with, you're just much less likely to pay the bill. And so from the point of view of consumer delight being the cornerstone of how we want to conduct our business, that means we can't let go or sell servicing rights, collection rights, et cetera. That means we will bill you. A firm will be sending you a note saying, hey, perhaps in partnership with Shopify or or other partners, but that Affirm label has to be visible to you, just visible enough for you to know that we're the ones talking to you. And two, if you're building a network, you ultimately, the the thing you're hanging your head on is network effects and the fact that consumers that recognize you and say, oh yeah, I've, I've dealt with a firm before, they are the honest control giving financial product provider that have, has made my life a little bit better, so I, I'll, I'll do it again. So f- all those things compound to the idea that, no, we, we don't intend to white label. That said, I do think the industry is really, and you know, we've said it for 10 years, so it's, it's very gratifying actually to see all these competitive annou- announcements, as you put them, because frankly it suggests that, hey, th- these folks are now saying, wait a second, this, this whole idea of unbundling the credit card is real and I got to react and I got to do something. Um, you didn't ask the question, but I'll, I'll sort of speak to it for a second. Anyway, um, networks are generally speaking our natural partners. A big burden that we took on is connecting to literally hundreds of thousands of merchants now. And we get something very, very special from those connections, but there's always more to connections to, to create. And between now and the time we have them, writing existing network rails is very powerful it gives consumers access to you know gives consumers ubiquity of being able to use a firm and so networks getting into bnpl api delivery is a positive force for the industry but also a positive force for us the idea of partnering with banks that want to offer bnpl like products to their consumers certainly not something we've announced but is a I think a profound opportunity for lots of, especially smaller banks. I think folks that do not derive their primary profits from credit card portfolios should be looking at BNPL and asking the question all right, so now that the networks support this and a firm has this powered by a firm API, what can I put together that would delight my consumers? And so we're very excited about that. And that opportunity is deep and interesting, and there's a lot to do there.
9: Hopeful, uh, especially the bifurcation of, of the market opportunity. And then, Michael, as a follow up, on adaptive checkout, can you speak to uh, yield lift? I assume it's included in your weighted average yield uh, outlook, uh, sort of the format or the structure. But uh, can you speak discreetly to, to yield lift and, and also attach rate and how we might think about that?
8: Yeah, so the adaptive checkout product is really designed to drive better results for our merchant partners especially living up to our real point of differentiation, which is our ability to serve transactions of all sizes and durations. Uh, We tend to think about going to market with that product in a way that's neutral to our total business and still driving better results with respect to conversion and consumer adoption. What that really means for us is we think there's a marginal impact on GMV and a meaningful impact on users in our network while driving really outstanding results for our merchant partners.
9: Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Our next question comes from Jason Kupferberg at B of A Securities.
12: Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for all the details today. We appreciate it. I wanted to see if you could spend a minute just giving us your latest views on the regulatory backdrop as the buy now, pay later space continues to obviously expand in popularity Certainly, there have been some media reports from time to time about uh, some consumers getting themselves into a bit of trouble, which may certainly be a one-off situation, but um, with just the fact that this may get more attention as the industry continues to experience significant growth. and I know you've been proactive with the regulators in general, but I'd love to get your perspective and and how that perspective may evolve as you take your business overseas.
1: Great question. So first of all, for the avoidance of doubt, not only have have we been engaged with a variety of regulators over the years, we are a very regulated business. We see regulatory attention through our bank partners. We speak directly to state regulators. So we have a full complement of regulatory relationships that we need to be very attentive to and and are. Um, Two, I think I speak for the entire team but I'm certainly personally generally fairly pro-regulation when it comes to these new financial products because in the business we're in, unless you see some degree of coordination among players, even you know, violent competitors that want to edge each other out in the market, you want to make sure that consumers and merchants aren't inadvertent victims there. And so what that means is you have to standardize around the way of communicating. What is and isn't offered in a product and the way you report it to authority, to credit bureaus if that's part of the offering, et cetera. And so generally speaking, I think regulatory attention is a positive thing so long as it is rooted in understanding of the product, understanding of what the intent is, et cetera. And so all of that is why we engage with the regulators. That's why you know, I spent several years on the uh, CFPB's advisory board specifically to make sure that we have a chance to communicate our value proposition. We tend to think of ourselves as sort of the you know, the, the one honest actor in the space, having chosen from the very beginning to charge no fees of any kind, including not even late fees. The reason for it is as much about creating a unique brand and unique value proposition to the consumers, but also to, frankly, align our incentives, the consumers and the regulators. Like ultimately, when a regulator says, all right, so what percentage of your profits come from the fact that consumers just forgot to pay your bill, It's like zero. If someone forgets to pay their bill, my number one incentive to say, please pay your bill on time because I am losing money as a result and there's nothing I'm gonna do about it other than remind you a few more times. And I think that direct connectivity with person's well-being, and the regulatory intent has served us really, really well and grounded our regulatory conversations just the right way for many years now. I think the industry, frankly, could use some of that. And so I would love for my competitors, both tiny and huge, to join the idea of no late fees, Get rid of that terrible thing called deferred interest once and for all, which, you know, if there's one thing I've, I'm, I'm passionate against, it's deferred interest and, and many other gimmicks that the industry is infamous for. So I, you know, pardon the soapboxing, but uh, that it would be some welcome attention in those those areas.
12: Makes sense. And just a follow up question for Michael. It sounds like you do expect this hyper growth phase to continue beyond fiscal 2022. And we can debate how long that will continue, but once you move from hyper growth to growth, how long roughly would you expect that growth phase to potentially last?
8: We don't know. It's, it's super early in our industry. You know, I, I, the, the fact that we're, you know, we're headline news every day in our space just says that there's a lot of dynamic stuff going on, not to mention our own roadmap, which I think takes us in a lot of different directions. Um, so really uncertain as to how long we'll be in any of those phases, but we're making a positive commitment that when we're growing at those rates of GMV and revenue, you should expect the associated uh, revenue, unit economics, and adjusted operating income.
12: Okay. Thanks for that framework, it was very helpful.
8: Thanks,
0: Jason. Our next question comes from Rob Wildeck at Autonomous. Hi,
10: hey Max, Michael, a
12: uh, quick one to start. Is there anything different or unique in how you monetize the brand sponsor promotions?
1: Sorry, I want to make sure I understand the question. Is there something uniquely different about how we monetize it? Right. Is it
12: there revenue you can generate from the brand or is it strictly
11: you know, flow through the traditional uh, merchant merchant discount rate framework?
1: Um, I'm kind of almost hearing you, but for the Yes, the, the brands are contributing financially to the outcome. It's sort of the magical experience where you pay no interest and no fees and no deferred interest, no, no gimmicks, and the merchant does not have to pay a outsized MDR, and yet you have a 0% transaction and are never going to pay a penny of interest or a penny more than a cash transaction would be. And that is because the brand is motivated to subsidize the transaction.
12: Got it. <laughs> you become more and more of a platform, customer relationships, customer retention become really important. I won't ask about any partnerships specifically, but, but maybe you could talk broadly and strategically about the considerations that go into ownership of customer relationship, especially when you're integrating enterprise partners.
1: To to the extent that I can synthesize it since every one of our relationships is different and you know we've become sort of the provider of choice for a lot of these very large retailers very large platforms uh, each one of those has a contour that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation generally speaking what we found is that making sure that our brand is visible enough to the end consumer is the thing that sort of drives a lot of our consideration and you can literally see it in the numbers as we add more of these partnerships the network effects are kicking in where consumers say, oh, I've seen you before. I bought item X on retailer Y and now I'm here. And I know that you are the one provider that won't screw me. And uh, pardon the, the blunt language, but uh, consumers pick us because we give them a sense of control and don't charge them late fees. And uh, that is the network effect we're looking for, frankly. And so ultimately the consumer ownership is a fickle thing. You can have all the rights to spam someone and they will never transact again if you are treating them right and making sure that they are feeling in control, you end up uh, in a pretty good place. Great, thank you. Thanks,
0: Rob. Our next question comes from Dan Perlin at RBC Capital.
13: Hey, thanks guys. Um, Just a quick question on the Affirm Debit Plus. How um, how portable is it across DBA accounts? Said differently you know, are you decoupling it from the bank potentially if you wanna move it around to, to different accounts over time or, or do you have to be completely tethered to one account as you issue specific cards?
1: That is a fantastically payment nerd question. I commend you on, on your interest in payment. Uh, it is not tethered. You'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to, it, it will be portable.
13: Okay that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and I, completely completely so I would think some banks should be nervous. So, um, I'll no, ask actually, I'll ask I
1: think it. it's the other way around. Okay. Uh, I think banks thinking, Oh wow, these guys are coming in for my users should breathe a sigh of relief. Like your users are your users. We're trying to offer them something unique and special and very affirm specific and not trying to take away your DDA relationship. Yeah,
13: No, that's fantastic. Right, let me ask a non-payment nerd question. Um, I, I hope you, you take it as a compliment. This, this was not No, a, I did, uh... I, believe me. After 20 years, man, you, know, you gotta earn that, right? So I appreciate I, it. I, I
1: consider myself a payment nerd, and I, I, I delight in uh, you know, asking me again about the soft descriptor uh, character limit.
13: Absolutely. Um, well, this one's just a balance sheet question, so it's pretty simple, but as we think about the product roadmap that you've outlined for us today, How do we think about what's gonna be on balance sheet, what's off balance sheet? I know you talked about this most recent securitization, so that's pretty exciting, especially for low AOV, which I think removes some of the concern around that. But if you would um, elaborate on that, that'd be fantastic. And thank you very much for today.
1: That might be for Michael. Happy to take
8: it. Uh, So we think about the balance sheet strategy as varying by product. We walked through a little bit today for our existing pay over time products, the way we think about how each one fits. Um, we mentioned that, pay, you know, the split pay business, for example, which is predominantly a warehouse-funded product. We've begun putting it into securitizations, and you'll see us make improvements like that over time. If you think about the rest of the portfolio, um, each one will have a different flavor, and the, the guiding principle is always, first and foremost, we're going to enable growth. So our capital program is going to make sure that we can fund all of the great ideas that we have on a roadmap and we don't limit our growth based upon our ability to access capital. Uh, but then we want to make sure that we're really attending to taking care of the equity capital required, the shareholders' money. We put that as a pretty important number to manage, too, um, because we do think that the value of owning a firm isn't in the assets we produce. That's why we access the debt capital markets. We think about the value of owning a firm is in the way in which we're building, you know, we think the, the most valuable network.
13: Excellent. Thank you, Bill.
0: All right, thanks. Our next question comes from John Hecht at Jefferies.
10: Hey, thanks very much, guys. appreciate you the, uh, the second. I, I guess this is to in with what The
4: With
10: respect to the funding channel, clearizations for buyers, for buyers, what's the mix of that right now? How has that migrated over time? But to what degree is it change to the great partner in a couple of years' after?
8: Uh, you were breaking up quite a bit, but I think the question is, how has the funding mix of our business evolved over time? Correct. Okay. Could
1: have worked. I have no the,
9: idea. The,
8: Zoom was 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 crippling us there.
10: Apologize. No, it's not you. No, no, it's,
8: I, it's, it's it's our. It's Zoom. Um, so, the first of all, the like, evolution of our funding over time. Um, we began funding our business with equity in in the early days of the business when we were really small and nascent. We introduced our first leverage when we began. Open warehouse lines, and we got modest amounts of leverage, uh, but it was expensive and not that efficient. We then introduced the forward flow relationships, which are very, very efficient, obviously, with respect to equity capital, uh, but there's real economic give to the counterparties in order to, to move the loans over and, and sell the risk. Uh, the securitization program, which is now a year old, um, is really designed to get to the most efficient frontier of how we will fund the business both with respect to the actual funding costs as well as the uh... the, the ability to get leverage out of it and whether it's revolving securitizations which are on balance sheet or our term securitizations which we've recently begun getting off balance sheet they're both very efficient with equity capital and we, we view that as again one of our guiding principles if you think about going forward um, again our first and most important job in the capital team is to enable growth which means we're going to use any and all levers we're not shy about that we think it's important to have warehouse capacity, just like it's important to have committed whole loan buyers, and we'll continue to be a regular issuer in the securitization market. Uh, I know it's an unsatisfying answer because some folks really want to model out things specifically, but I think the guiding principle is we're going to be really careful with your equity capital and we're going to grow the business a lot.
0: Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for the question. Our next question comes from Chris Brendler at DA Davidson.
14: There we go. Hi, thanks. I guess I'll piggyback on on the securitization question. Michael, I'd love to hear um, a little more detail about the off balance sheet program. I guess people who follow this space for a long time, like myself, we had some problems with off balance sheet treatment. It kind of muddies the economics. It it front loads a gain that may not be cash. Um, So maybe it's just a philosophy around off balance sheet. Is there a limit to how much you want to use it? Is there a pickup in capital efficiency that's worth? Um, some of the noise that comes with it, and is there um, a certain product benefit that fits better in that program than others?
3: So
8: your last question first. That was my first question, by the way. Okay. So the last part of your first question first. Uh, Yeah, of course, so if you look at our our off-balance sheet securization program, it's all fixed term length, longer term loans uh the revolving program is required because the assets turn over so fast that we would be doing a new new deal every few months and that's just not not sustainable the these are longer term uh deals where we warehouse uh, some loans and then package them up and securitize and that's that product then is limited to long duration a long duration program in terms of the, the motivating factor for off-balance sheet versus on-balance sheet, remember these, these longer-term loans tend to be our 0% loans where there's not a lot of interest income in them anyway. So our economics really relate to upfront merchant fees as well as the gain on sale flowing through the income statement on the mechanics that I won't bore you all with right now. But if you think about the, the the gain on sale piece of that, that's secondary to the merchant fee. And we view, again, all of that as something we need to do to enable this really delightful customer experience in facilitating a transaction. Um, we don't have a goal to be off or on balance sheet. That's uh, one of these things that I think a lot of folks get a little bit frustrated with because they want us to think about, well, how much is gonna be on the balance sheet, how much is going to be off. We're pretty agnostic as to whether or not um, we account for it as on or off. We're just always compliant with the the GAP standards. However, we're interested in accessing growth. And if we can, if we can be efficient with the equity capital and more efficient, we will. Um, the revolving securizations are being done at something around 99% of consumer balances, which is super efficient, and frankly, from a capital standpoint, isn't all that different than a a, a loan sale, which is obviously zero capital required. And so... We're not we're not focused on managing the trade-offs between those two, and and not particularly worried about uh, being on versus off balance sheet. We're just interested in funding the growth and being really efficient with your equity capital.
14: Your disclosure is already pretty good, so it helps us sort through of those pieces, um, just makes it a little more confusing when it's off balance sheet. Um, my follow-up question is also from a payments BNPL nerdy question. When it comes to the virtual card, which the non-integrated virtual card show sort up of the bottom of that, that awesome chart you put up in, on slide 12, of the earnings release. Um, and I wanted to know like this whole idea of providing BNPL after the purchase, just like your debit plus shows as well. Like you're not really getting a merchant fee there. So if it's not a consumer funded loan, you know, where there's not a lot of revenue of the interchange. Um, and that seems to be the, the way that the tr- incumbent credit card providers are attacking the business, like trying to you're just be an after the fact BNPL provider and without a merchant sort of getting involved and, and paying a fee what's your perspective on that part of the business and I think we've talked about the fact that you drive a lot of sales in that business so you should be able to get a little affiliate fee or referral fee um, that maybe that even even that puts you still a, a step ahead of your competitors and that's how the business Thanks uh,
1: I'll, I'll uh, answer it from the product value point of view, and Michael probably wants to comment on, on the economic side of it. So this is going to be my closing statement, but I'll just say it out loud now. Uh, the one takeaway, or the two takeaways, actually, to, to get from, from this whole uh, extravaganza is we're in a business of consumer frequency, which is a fancy way of saying we want to make sure you have a reason to come back and come back and come back. And if we're successful there, we'll continue providing merchants and platforms, merchant platforms with more value. Like those are the two metrics we're trying to maximize. And they're not at odds with each other, they're actually mutually reinforcing. And so you're right that there are some areas that are more or less profitable on a different variety of transactions. But fundamentally, if consumers say this BNPL thing powered by a firm was amazing, I'm going to do it again and again, there's a natural creation of value for the merchant. And in those scenarios, merchants are more than happy to say you're no longer just a payment facilitator which is, in fact, a very sort of boxed-in margin structure. You can be more and more efficient, but you're not going to be able to charge a lot more than 3% ever. If you're in the business of marketing surface provision or creating new leads or bringing in consumers with a predetermined idea of what they're going to buy and how they're going to be able to afford it, you're now playing at the marketing budget of the merchant. And you become a marketing partner and a marketing value provider as much as a payments facilitator. And so that's where we see opportunities to grow our business lines in terms of creating more value for the merchant and therefore being able to command a larger share of their overall growth budgets by giving them more committed customers, customers that didn't know about them yet, et cetera. So that's sort of the the product side of the equation. I agree, I think, with your implicit criticism that some of the traditional players basically addressing BNPL as a post-transaction feature that is fundamentally kind of a repartitioning of consumers' financial reality afterwards. I don't think that's such a bad idea. In general, I think that's the right direction for the end consumer. They will feel more in control. They are going to be able to have a slightly better sleep over when they're going to be out of debt. If they're revolving on something now, they'll just have a pay down plan. But I don't think there's a tremendous amount of value delivered to the merchant. And therefore, the economics of the transactions are constrained which unfortunately, I think, suggests a natural pull by the financial institutions that are offering these things towards making money from the consumer. And so if you are able to intertwine the value to the merchant and the frequency of consumer, you then don't have to rely on finding a new way of monetizing the consumer in these ex post facto transactions. And so... I think that's a unique advantage that we have. And the, the point of sale integrations that we, we have and the partnerships that we've struck with platforms are all about that. This idea of using the merchant value to feed consumers more delightful, positive transactions that they can feel good about. If you, Michael, want to comment on the, on the economics of it, but I, that,
8: I, I think you nailed it. I, the only thing I'd add is if you look at our app, if you just go download our app, which everyone should do, and you look at the shopping. Um, Of our app, you'll see interest bearing offers, you'll also see 0% offers. And again, we we think about that surface as driving as many results as we can for our merchant partners. And if we earn an affiliate fee, we may reinvest that into a really compelling offer that could be a cash back, it could be a discount on the item. We also will try to figure out a way to make 0% magic happen in the app, even if there's not a direct integrated merchant relationship. So we think about that surface and in, in the virtual card product is really just a—it's a way for us to then close a transaction for a non-integrated merchant. We think about the marketing surface as a way to make money from merchants, um, and of course, we also have interest-bearing loans there too. Uh, for what it's worth, the, the interchange that we do make on those virtual cards is a key part of the economics there. So I don't want to be dismissive of that either. Yeah, it's been
0: growing really fast nice
14: too. So I appreciate the color. That's
0: awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Our next question comes from Vincent Kaintick at Stevens.
11: Thanks for taking my question. I appreciate all the detail in the conversation in this forum. Uh, so, first question, I uh, just want to unpack guidance uh, a little bit. So, appreciate all the, uh, the detail here. And uh, one of the things I want to talk about is all the, the merchant wins that you've announced. Um, and I know you're not particularly giving guidance on any particular guys, but if you talk about how you expect those to play out in a time in terms of your piloting, your um, you know, fully launch, you generate revenues, and how you expect that to play out. And this is additionally kind of the same thing with Dev Plus, thank you.
8: So the, with respect to any new partner, and if you're speaking about the uh, Amazon, I, I would tell you I've got to stick back to what we've disclosed in a press release. And what we filed in in the 8K, it's way too early for us to give you any indication about timelines, process, et cetera uh, And it wouldn't be wouldn't be smart with respect to debit. Um, that product is still all well, it's an awesome product, and I use it every day. So it's very much live, and we are thinking about the right way to get the the product rolled out. I'll let Max speak to more specific timelines because he's accountable for it. But I, I will say. I will say that we've been intentional around not including anything in our guidance for fiscal 22 associated with the debit card. Um, and by, that, by anything, I mean specifically GMV and revenue. Those numbers aren't reflected there. Um, if you think about longer term, the meaningful contribution of debit-only transactions does, is not reflected in any of that financial pro forma. And that just really reflects a lack of certainty we have around when and where and how it's going to hit. But you should think about the lending aspect, the the loans that would be generated on the card, whether it's a split pay transaction or an interest-bearing transaction or a 0% longer-term transaction, those would be considered part of how we deliver that long-term GMV and revenue growth that we guided to or or indicated in our framework. And Max, you wanna wanna make a
1: commitment? There's some fancy explaining there. I was trying to keep track. Um, So, uh, I'm just trying to deflect attention from the accountable <laughs> for. Uh, so, so here's the roadmap on, on Debit Plus. So, and Michael's right on the uh, on the question of any large partner. We move very deliberately, and we're in the business of consumer delight, and it's easy to lose it, and it's very hard to get it. And so if you're gonna bring something out there and start forecasting volume, you better believe that you have a product market fit, and your EV testing has delivered the the kind of lift that you're looking for. So you know, when, when that is fully, set in our heads, then we'll, we'll start forecasting it for now. We're, we're really just very, very busy testing. Debit Plus is in market, so it's a little bit easier to say you know, what, we, what, what we'll do in terms of timeline. So we're wrapping up closed beta, which means internal employees and Couple hundred, uh, if I remember correctly, or if I if I know the latest, uh, outside folks that we invited in, and you know, there are things like user diaries. Every day I get this super cool experience where I read someone's diary of here's how I use debit plus, and here's what I bought, and here's what worked, and here's what didn't, and and that that's really really close to being done. Next up for that is we're going to start fulfilling the very very large, fortunately, list of folks that added themselves to the waitlist, and we're somewhat rate limited by the number of cards we can print. Uh, and so there's a little bit of the physical reality of, and we really love the experience of sending you a thing that you can say, oh, that's a firm in my wallet. And we we are asking for you to consider this as a top of wallet product, which is a tall order. So we have to make sure it works in every circumstance that it, where it should. And so we expect several thousand, let's call it sub 10,000 in a pre end of year, number of cards out there where we'll really start just doing reps of it works in this circumstances and and, in that. Uh, and then starting with the beginning of the year, we're going to indiscriminately fulfill the wait list and just take it to a uh, general population. One thing that uh, maybe a wrinkle that that is worth highlighting, so Debit Plus ships with its own separate app. Part of the reason for it is we developed it concurrently with the switch to the super app architecture. And so you should expect Debit Plus to become a mini app inside of the super app offering. But the second part of it is we anticipate Debit Plus to be such a standalone powerful product that folks may well discover a firm through the debit plus offering first and only then decide that they will notice a firm logo and all these super cool retailers that we've been able to strike partnership with and so you may well sort of rabbit hole into a firm from either the debit plus app or the firm proper as found at the point of sale we think sometime through the second half of the year is when we'll start looking at real metrics and being able to forecast the most important question there and you can hold me accountable to this one or maybe michael a half a year from now or maybe three-quarters of a year from now is what is that frequency like did you get top of wallet are you getting close to top of wallet And i think that that's the uh... that 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 is the bid and we'll find out uh, we'll find out how well we do but we're needless to say i'm very excited i also use it every day so i'm a little bit biased but uh... that's part of the uh, part of the job
11: okay, thanks for that and i actually wanted to follow up on that uh... Gus comment um, so in the presentation, you made a comment that the bank shouldn't be worried about this, that the banks are actually going to be, uh, should be happy about this to keep the customer. It seems that since the bank is keeping this relationship, is there a, a possibility of working with the uh, the bank as a? this is an opportunity for them to offer buy now, pay later? Are you using a firm or just kind of trying to think of how the different players uh, work towards this? Thank you.
1: You know, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll speak to that when we find a willing participant, but uh, I certainly think that eventually most debit cards out there will need to have a BNPL component. I think that, that, that's a fait complete in my, if, I, if, I, if I'm allowed some prognostication, I think the credit card as a... Catch-all tool for all pay overtime time transactions, where you end up revolving on couches and bicycles and donuts and coffees, is going away. I think that that's a, a past product that does not really have place in a world of smart apps, smartphone apps. And so, the natural place to put your overtime transactions, as conducted, especially in a physical reality, is your debit card. And debit plus is that idea. And you know, we, we, we built it for a reason. The reason we're excited about it is. We do think it represents a new category of products, and I do expect lots of financial institutions who are in the business of issuing debit cards to say, hey, I should have one of these things. And it, it won't necessarily all come by way of partnering with a firm, although we do think that there's a really good reason to partner with us. The biggest reason is we are the tech company of the set, you know, sort of legitimately real tech chops companies, so we, we can help folks build these things the right way, scalable way, and we know what we're doing, managing risk, which is a thing once you're in a pay-over-time business, you kind of have to know what to do about risk. And we do have capital markets expertise that Michael spoke about uh, a little bit earlier. And so I think the opportunities exist. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll certainly announce partnerships if, if and when they come. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Vincent. Our last question comes from uh, Jason Kupferberg at B of A Securities. Back.
12: Thanks, guys, for t- Quick follow up. It's debit plus, and wanted to just see if you can share with us who the network initial partners are, are on the card. and then perhaps if you could just elaborate a little bit on the comments that you made around moving over time to some form of ACH settlement. Thank you.
1: Um, the quick answer to your first part of the question is not yet, uh, but watch the space, and. Um, The most important thing about Debit Plus and a at large and our vision for this industry and this company is what I meant by the the slangy term software defined. The thing that's really cool about what we do and how we build things is this idea that we can give you a product, be it a piece of plastic or an app, and then over the air update the functionality. And whether it's settlement functionality that we choose or the rewards package you're going to get or the special offers you get at a retailer, we are uniquely unconstrained because we are literally updating these things on the fly over software and we have full SKU level visibility into the data as consumers go around and transact with various merchants where we're integrated. And that creates just an absolute barrage of opportunity that we, 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 can, we can take on. And so the answer to a lot of these, will you choose to try this? If it's economically viable and makes sense and delights consumers and brings more value to merchants, the answer is yes, we will. It's, it's almost a fait complete that we're going to have to try it because it's there for the taking. Thank you.
0: All right. That concludes our Q&A session today, and it also concludes our event for today. I'll turn it over to Max to take us out.
1: Thanks, Ron. Uh, thank you, everyone, who stuck around with us this long. This, this is, uh, was a lot of uh, a lot of fun to produce, and hopefully, you you enjoyed uh, some of some of the uh, the answers and the banter. Um, and I, I already sort of spat out the one thing that I, I really want everybody to uh, take home: consumer delight, or uh, metrically speaking, consumer frequency and merchant value are the two things that we're truly really focused on, and we feel like we are just hitting our stride in, in both those. So I'm very excited. Sort of the, the, the buzz you hopefully feel is genuine. We're shipping a ton of product, which as an engineer, that's sort of what gets me going. Uh, with a lot of momentum, a lot of great partnerships that we announced, and you know more, more good stuff coming. Um, the only thing I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't say, and I hope at least a subset of our team is watching,